Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray together. Lord God, today we sing of that day when that mighty throng from every nation and tribe and tongue will sing triumphantly and gloriously that the Lord God Almighty reigns. We hasten toward that day. And Lord, we are sure of this, that on that day, our eyes won't be on whether or not we were rich or poor or healthy or sick or despised by the world or esteemed by many. On that day, all that will matter is that we are yours. And so now as we open your word, Spirit of God, would you show us our sin so that we might repent of it, confess it, come clean. Now, Spirit of God, as we open your word, would you show us ourselves so that all the deception and the falsehoods, the excuses and the blame shifting would dry up, burn away. And Spirit of God, more than anything, more than showing us our sin and more than showing us ourselves. Spirit of God, would you above all else show us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may behold and believe upon him. Amen. Amen. Well, I bring you greetings from uh, Jose and Becky Torres, our beloved brother and sister. I've been out of the pulpit the last few weeks. Last two weeks, I've been in Mexico uh, with them. We sent Jose and Becky to plant our sister church, uh, Esperanza Viva, actually in Waukegan, Illinois. Right now, it's meeting in their house. They're looking for a, a, a semi-permanent location. But Jose invited me to speak to a, a small group of pastors from Costa Rica, Mexico, Puerto Rico in uh, the, we met in the uh, Yucatan Peninsula and uh, I was able to minister the book of Isaiah to them and to preach to them and do some questions and answers and a seminar on expository preaching. But now that I've returned, uh, I can't wait to get back into the book of Isaiah. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the book of Isaiah is, is just about one of my favorite books in the world is because when you open the book of Isaiah, what we pray every time we open the Bible, it has to happen in Isaiah. When you open Isaiah, you'll see your sin and you'll know how to repent from it. And you'll see yourself. And more than anything else, you'll see your Savior every time you open the book of Isaiah. And we'll see that today in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 43. We'll read through this text. We're in the second half of Isaiah 42, and then we'll take Isaiah 43 down through about verse 21. And here in Isaiah, as we look at 42 and 43, we're going to start with the bad news, and then we'll get to the good news. We're going to start with our well-earned punishment or discipline, and then we'll get to our utterly unearned and yet received mercy. We get the wrath that we bring on ourselves by our own sin. But you know, we also get God's love, which we do not bring upon ourselves, but rather God chooses to give us 
what we don't deserve, which is his tremendous love. The last time we looked at Isaiah 42, we looked at those first verses where it says, behold my servant, and it talks about Jesus, that, he won't, that, that the bruised reed he won't break, and that the faintly burning wick he won't quench. And Isaiah, in this sort of bold preacher's move, he uses that same term, behold my servant, but as you'll see as we pick it up in 42.18, instead of using the servant as referring to the Messiah, he uses the servant back again to refer to Israel, who instead of honoring God, dishonored God, and instead of walking in righteousness, chose to sin. And so he condemns Israel for their sin in Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 18. Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time to come? You see verse 24, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Israel, like us, stubbornly refused to obey God. And the consequence was poured out on them in wrath and in the consequences of sin. Verse 25 uh, vividly portrays the firestorm which was the Babylonian captivity. But please notice that verses 24 and 25 do not attribute the Babylonian captivity to the socio-economic or military conditions that were resident in the ancient Near East. It is attributed to the Lord God. Was it not the Lord against whom we sinned? I, I don't mean to over-spiritualize the news, but I watched, as you did, election returns and what's happening, and everybody's got a reason for everything, but all I can think of is Romans 1. Romans 1. God gives over. We can look at earthly causes here and there, but it's God who's on the throne. So though the Babylonians conquered the Israelites, it was the hand of God behind it all. And yet even though Israel sinned, Isaiah 43 is going to tell us that God does not cast off his covenant people. And it is the same for us. Confessing Christians, we confess, we have earned God's condemnation. We have not earned 
but we have received God's covenant mercies in salvation. And so quickly in Isaiah 43, he reaffirms his love for his people. Look with me at Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather them up. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 43 is a wonderful reaffirmation of God's calling to Israel not being revoked. Though they failed, God will send his servant to take the consequences of their failure. Though they rebelled and resisted his will, he is their father still. There's a small analogy in the life of an earthly father if you've had a child who's been cruel to you, you've had a child who's rebelled against you, you don't stop loving them. There, there's a way that your love for them uh, pangs even deeper out of your heart when you go through something like that. Though they rebelled against him, he loves them still. And the constancy of God's covenant love, the constancy of God's covenant love it arises out of God's heart, not out of what his people have merited or earned. Though Israel would be disciplined for her sin, get this, though Israel would be disciplined for her sin, even her sin cannot separate her from God's great love for her. What a wonder that even though she would be disciplined, even her sin couldn't separate her from God's covenant love for her because the future of Israel does not depend on Israel. The future of Israel depends upon Israel's God. Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 7 are often recorded as one of the most tender sets of poetic words in all of the Old Testament. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. Water and fire are traditional symbols for testing that suggest totality in the Hebrew, uh, you know, parallelism or antithetical parallelism. And, and uh, this Hebrew expression uh, was picked up by James Taylor. Go through fire, go through rain. 
this was nominated as the song of the year at the 13th annual Grammy Awards. That would be 1971 for songs written in 1970. Uh, though Fire and Rain didn't win song of the year. You know what won song of the year in 71? If you know the music back then, I'm talking about like before Lizzo, okay? Like before that. <laughs> you, you know, if we're talking 71, it's like, if you guess Simon and Garfunkel, that's a good guess. Carpenters, Beatles. Funnily enough, another song with a lot of Hebrew imagery in it, one song of the year, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's also from the Hebrew text. Anyway. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> what, you know, if, if, if I wrote a study Bible one day out of the random things out of my mind, it would not be a helpful study Bible. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, to me, the, the strongest verse in this cluster of verses is actually verse 3 because God gives three different names for himself in this one verse. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Notice the three names, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. These three names for God heighten Israel's security. He, Israel is not secure because of who she is. Israel is secure because of the name of the God who has called her. The name of God is why Israel is secure. Though she has sinned and though she will be severely disciplined for her sins, she will go through water. She will go through fire. The Lord will be with her and her future is secure because of God's character. There's a genuine promise here that the future of Israel does not depend on Israel's sinlessness, but on God's covenant, on God's name. This is a profound lesson. Not only for, uh, because it does hold, if it, it holds consequences for my view of, of end times prophecy and God's regathering of Israel, but there's also a lesson here for you as far as what if, what if today, when this service is over, you could walk out of church knowing this, my future does not depend on me. My future depends on the name of God. What if, what would the kind of emotional tenor and the sort of frenetic trajectory of your life, how would that stabilize your life if you could walk out of here realizing my future depends upon who God has said he is? The Holy One, the Lord my God, my Savior. And did you notice the almost inexpressible answer to the question, why does God love us in verse four? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Why is Israel precious to God? Because Israel is precious in God's eyes. Why is Israel precious in God's eyes, verse four? Because God chose to honor Israel. Why did God choose to honor Israel? Because God has loved Israel. Why did God love Israel? Because he is God. I think the answer is in verse three. For I am the Lord your God. 
There's no answer to the why does God love Israel except for the answer because he is God. Just as if I were to ask you, why does God love you? The only way that you could answer that question is to say because of his name, because of who he is, because of his character, because he's God. Daddy, why do you love me? What is a dad going to say? Because you're you and I'm me. That love's not dependent on anything outside of that. In a classic text in um, Deuteronomy 7, God says, why did I choose Israel? You ever heard this text? Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love. Why does God love them? Because he chose to love them and he's God and he keeps his promises. Daddy, why do you love me? Son, I love you because you get straight A's in school. Small aside to parents, I think you should care about your kids' grades. I think you should generally care about your kids' performance in life because the Proverbs say it's your responsibility not to raise a sluggard. So you, you actually shouldn't, as a parent, reward a sluggardly behavior the same as you reward responsible hard work. Our society would decay if we didn't reward hard work and we rewarded sluggishness. In fact, that's one argument why our society is decaying. But again, I'm go taking an aside here. The, the, uh, the issue is it's love, it's unconditional love that causes you to care about what kind of grades your kids get. It's not that they get those grades to earn your love. It's your love that is the bedrock back behind everything that motivates you to remain working hard with them for their good. Understand that the bedrock is love. Daddy, why do you love me? The answer can never be because you get A's in school or because you got a hit on the T-ball on the team. The only answer to that question is, um, son, I love you uh, because I'm your daddy. And I love you because you're my son. I love you because you're you and I'm me. There's nothing outside of that relationship that, that's going to waver that love. This is what God's saying in verse 3 when he says, because you're precious in my eyes and honored, I've loved you. And the, the, the reason back behind that is verse 3, because he is the Lord God. And notice 2 loves price. 
Did you notice that? It's, it's, a, it's a sideways way of saying it in the Hebrew text, but he says the price that is paid, the second half of verse three, second half of verse four, I give Egypt as your ransom, I give Cush in exchange for you. Verse four, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. The measure of love is the measure of the price that is paid. We're walking through a really nice mall. I love that sweater. Well, that sweater is finest Irish Aaron wool, and that sweater costs $535. Well, I don't love that sweater that much. <laughs> the, the measure of love is the price that's paid. Don't miss it. I know you heard this one before, but don't miss it. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Faint echo ahead of time. I'll exchange Egypt. I'll exchange Cush, Seba for my people Israel. But when it came time for God to show his love for the world, when all the tributary streams of prophetic, redemptive prophecy came to their fullness, when God so loved the world, he gave his son. Church, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation, wrath-bearing substitute for our sin. Notice the motive for God's love, that he's God. Notice the price behind God's love. And third, notice how God's love is related to the command to fear not. Because you're precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. And then he says in verse 5, fear not. You can be afraid if the God who loves you is smaller than that of which you are afraid. You need me to run that by you one more time? You have my permission to be afraid. If the God who loves you is smaller, less powerful than that of which you are afraid. If your God is an idol, you better be afraid every day of your ever-loving life. But if your God is this God, why would you fear? What would you fear? Whom would I fear? This is our God. <coughs> And he loves us with this almighty love. He says in verse 6, I'll say to the north and the east and the west, this is one of many prophetic passages in Isaiah that is picked up in the New Testament. I think it's quoted in Matthew 24. I think it's quoted in, in or it's alluded to in Romans 9 through 11 and in the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a passage with a pre-fillment that is the return from the Babylonian captivity. But the return from the Babylonian captivity didn't exhaust all of the north, all of the south, all of the east, all of the west. That will happen in the full fulfillment here, which will be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. He concludes and completes his plans for Israel in his millennial reign. We read down through verse 7. Let's read the rest of the chapter or at least through uh, 20 or 21. He says in verse 8, Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. 
Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right. And let them hear and say, if it's true, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. We're going to come back to verse 10, and I'm going to show you about worshiping and witnessing. But let's keep reading. Verse 11, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can take it back? Check that last line of verse 13. I work, who can take it back? Church, let that question, let that question echo like a thunderclap right out of heaven. If God does something, who is there that will ruin it? Who could stop God? Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I'm the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished and quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, verse 19 says, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches. I'll give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to drink for my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. He talks in verses 16, 17, and 18 about the Exodus making the way and putting the chariots of Egypt in the sea. And he says, that was the way that I did things in the first prototypical redemption. But then he says, I'm going to do something new. He says, don't remember the former things. It's certainly not the case that God wants us to forget the Exodus. But God's so wise, what he does say is, as you, as you look back at the Exodus, don't think that God is frozen in that. No, God has a greater salvation yet to come. And so I want to bring you back to verses 10 and 11 because I think these will help us not to fear but rather to worship and to be his witnesses. You see verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I just want to draw your attention to the truth of verse 10 and 11, that there's worship and there's witness. There's worship upward and there's witness outward. I think we heard it in uh, our sister Stacy's testimony that she came into the church and she could see the way we worship the Lord. And her friend Jane brought her here as an expression of witness. There's praise going up 
And then there's witness going out and reaching people. First, we receive the truth of who God is, and that nurtures our amazement at who God is. And then, as, as if it's contagious, as if we've seen something wonderful, we grab somebody else and we tell them, don't you want to see this? Don't you want to know this? But notice what it is we bear witness to in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. See it in the text. You are my witnesses... Uh, what do we witness to? Verse 10 says, we witness to this fact, that before him no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after him, and that he is the Lord, and that beside him there is no Savior. You know, when we talk to people about God, we are talking about the one before whom there is nothing and after whom there is nothing. God is just absolutely there. When you're witnessing to someone about God, you're witnessing about absolute reality. You're witnessing about the absolute reality of the universe. Isaiah 43 verse 10 alludes to the, uh, the uh, original name of God in the Exodus in uh, Exodus 3 verse 14 when Moses said, who can I say is, is leading us? God says, my name is, I am who I am, from which we get Yahweh or Jehovah, that God is the I am. What does it mean that God is the I am? It means that I am he, before me no God was formed, after me there's nothing, I am the Lord, and beside me there's no Savior. To be the I am is to be the absolute first and the absolute last. It's to, it's to alone hold that space of solitary, supreme splendor in the whole universe. We are witnesses to who he is, to his uncreated eternality. We are witnesses to who he is, to his undiminished glory. The holiness of God is such that in the throne room of God, the unfallen, they have never sinned, cherubim have to cover their eyes in his presence. This is his impenetrable wisdom, his unassailable holiness, his absolute reality. And notice that when we witness to that, Notice exactly what it says, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I want you to see the so that. And my servant whom I have chosen, that, or we could translate it so that, you may know and believe me. Catch that. You are my witnesses so that you may know and believe me. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Wouldn't you expect me to say, hey, we need a witness because there are more Stacys out there who need to come to Jesus and be baptized. We need to witness so that other people can know who God is. Well, of course we do. We want to bring them all in. That's a reason to witness, but that ain't the only reason to witness. Brother, sister, tr comfortable church member who's kind of clustered in all Christian relationships. If you are not witnessing, you are not knowing God like you could or should. This says that we are his witnesses so that we may know and believe him. Is witnessing a means of projecting out the truth of God? Absolutely. But is witnessing also a means of protecting and strengthening the truth that you hold onto of who God is? Absolutely. 
and all of our confidence in witnessing, all of our ability to receive that command of verse 5 to fear not, it all comes because He is the Lord. Because of those three names for God in verse 3. Because, well, why does he say to fear not in verse 5? Because he is with us. Why are we his witnesses? Because he alone is the Lord. This is the confidence that God's people can have. This is is the one thing that I'm offering you from the book of Isaiah is this kind of confidence. And confidence comes from knowing God. Show me my sin. Show me myself but more than anything else, show me my Savior. You've got to get this. I want you to receive the preaching from the book of Isaiah and I want it to fill you with confidence and fearlessness. And if, uh, if you take from the preaching in the book of Isaiah a, a sort of self-confidence, now you can walk out of here and conquer all of your enemies because you are you then you can walk out of here supremely confident and utterly defeated. Because I I love you, but I don't think you are a good repository of confidence because I know you. Neither am I. Our confidence is in God. Verse 3, I'm the Lord your God. I've called you. Verse 1, I created you. I've formed you for my glory. That's why you should fear not. God has called me by name. My confidence is not in my name. My confidence is in the fact that God has called my name. He created me. He formed me. He redeems me. That's where my fearlessness and confidence comes from. That's what this world needs more than ever before. A confused world needs a confident church. A doubting world needs a believing church. And a fearful, fearful world needs a fearless church who is fearless because she trusts God. I want you to overcome your fear of witnessing I want you to overcome your fear of maybe being too reserved in, in, in worshiping God. And I want you to witness like never before, to worship like never before because of who God is. He, verse 11, is the Lord. And beside him, there's no Savior. I think it all comes down to this. You will overcome your fears. You will overcome your fears when the truth about who God is becomes brighter than your own opinion about your own life. You will overcome your fears when the truth about who God is becomes more convincing to you than your own opinion about your own life experiences. That's what faith is. You'll overcome when the truth about who God is becomes utterly and deeply persuasive to you. That's when you can know that you can fear not and that he is with you. And beloved church, he has shown this in sending his son to save you. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we have opened your good and reliable word, you've shown us the sin of self-confidence. You've even shown us the sin of fearing that which is not you. And God, you've shown us that you are the mighty Savior and that your work in our lives is not so much dependent upon us as it is upon your name, your covenant, your character, your great love. And so we would ask that you would enable us to receive this with confidence so that we might be your witnesses to declare to everyone everywhere that there is none beside you. Lord, let us worship you fervently. Let us witness to you and for you faithfully. Do a tremendous work in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ as you build up your church. For Jesus' sake, amen. amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.